Well, everyone, it's been a long journey, but we are finally at the end of Mark's gospel. And I can't think of a better way to conclude our time in this truth than looking at Jesus's greatest miracle, his resurrection from the dead. So if you want to join with me, we're going to be in Mark chapter 16 today, reading from verses 1 through 8. You can either follow along in your own Bible, or you can follow along by looking at the screen to my left or right. Either way, let's all stand together as we come before the word of the Lord this morning to give it the respect it deserves. Again, we're in Mark chapter 16, and I'll start us in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices, so they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, When the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for what you have done for us. We pray today that you would open our hearts to receive your truth. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through my preaching, that your truth would be communicated. And I pray, Lord Father, that there is anything new we need to learn about you today, will you be open to receive it? So Holy Spirit, guide my words and help us to come and worship you as you deserve. In your son's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, don't worry, friends. It is not actually the month of April. I didn't actually misread the calendar when I prepared this sermon. You can rest assured it is still the wonderful season of fall or wearing flannels and talking about college football will continue to be my complete personality. So don't worry. Uh, That being said, I am preaching to you today from one of the most typical Easter Sunday passages. But that shouldn't feel odd or bizarre to you, even if it is fall. Because every Sunday morning, we should come together and recognize that the tomb did not hold Christ. That his story did not end on the cross. It had a wonderful climax with his physical resurrection from the dead. It is right for us to gather and renew our hope in that strength. Now, I know at times we as Christians can really focus on the cross, and we should, because the cross is vital for our salvation. It's the place where Jesus laid down his life, paid the penalty for our sin where he shed his own blood to do something we couldn't do on our own, pay a price that we could never overcome. 
But sometimes we focus so much on the cross that it seems like the resurrection is almost an afterthought. I would argue today that we should focus on the resurrection just as much as the cross. And we see the Apostle Paul goes even further than me. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 that without Jesus' resurrection from the dead, your faith would be worthless. My preaching to you today would have no point. And your hope in the risen Lord would be ill-founded. What in the world, why does the Apostle Paul make such a provocative statement about the resurrection? Why did I say it was Jesus' greatest miracle on earth? Why should the resurrection change the way we see our temporary life? Well, friends, I would argue the resurrection was the confirmation of Jesus' victory. It was his grand statement that he accomplished his redemptive mission on earth. And it was a sign that you and me share in that eternal victory today. So as we come before the Lord in worship, I think it's right for us to reflect on Jesus' victory in the resurrection. And we're going to do that in three clear ways. Firstly, we're going to recognize that Christ's resurrection overcomes our despair. Secondly, we're going to look at the fact that the resurrection overcomes our death. And then thirdly, we'll conclude by looking at the fact that his resurrection overcomes our greatest failures. So let's begin with that first reality, that Christ's resurrection overcomes our despair. One of the first things you can notice in Mark's passage today is that there is this almost gloomy atmosphere over Jerusalem before Christ's tomb was discovered empty. We know after the cross that Jesus' many followers were scattered. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law no doubt thought they had won. And the disciples, they were left confused, terrified, maybe even ashamed that they had been following this dead Messiah. Maybe they were even angry. Is this really where Jesus' ministry ends? I've given up everything to follow him for over three years. Is this all he's giving me in return? Confusion, doubt, fear? Now, I think it's fair to point out that Jesus did promise this is exactly what was going to happen. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus tells them multiple times, I will die, and three days later, I will rise again. But if we look at Mark's narrative, we're given no indication that the disciples actually believed this. Where were they when the stone was rolled away? Why weren't they faithfully waiting? Why were they still in hiding? It seems like despair had driven them into doubt, into fear. Instead, we see in verse 1 that three women who love Jesus are the ones who go to his tomb. These women were named Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and a woman named Salome. And they approached his tomb on that faithful Sunday morning with the purpose of anointing his body. Now, in Jewish culture, you would typically anoint someone's body right after they died as a way to show your final respect and love to who this person was to you. So by these these women coming to Jesus to anoint his body, they were showing just how much of a great friend he was to them, how much of a loving teacher he was, how much of a great Lord he had been. In other words, they were coming to say a final goodbye. They had accepted This death was final, and they were overcome with grief because of that. 
Notice with me, Mark is very clear here. He says they came early in the morning, as soon as their Sabbath law would let them leave their house. I can imagine they must have been overcome with so much emotional distress that they probably didn't even sleep the night before. And we see this confusion, this weakness, made them not even think about how they would remove the stone from the entrance. It's not until they're almost there in verse 3 that they even realize this issue and ask, who will roll away this stone for us? And let me just say, the staggering size of this stone, that not even three adult women could move, just speaks to how overwhelming and devastating this loss must have felt in their minds. Without Christ, they were left to live in a depraved world, a society that looked down on them, not just for being women, but for maybe following a Messiah that seemed like a sham, seemed like a liar. In every way, we're shown that despair seemed to have won the day. And let me just take a moment and say, I feel like that feeling can be all too real for us at times, can it? I know despair is no stranger to us in this room. The world has left us bruised and battered time and time again. We've had to live in a world where so many false idols are shoved in our face, and we try to cling to them, and they only leave us empty and almost mocked because we tried to find satisfaction in them. Many of us have had to see loved ones, family members, go through terrible illnesses, and we almost felt helpless watching that. We've lived in families where fighting and anger has divided us instead of united us in love. Some of us have even struggled with our own physical weaknesses that have taken away freedoms we once had and left us with disappointment, almost apathy. I can tell you, I look at the news sometimes and I see so much disagreement, so much anger. It leaves me with a cynical, cynical bitterness sometimes. This despair in our lives can feel almost insurmountable in moments. It leaves us feeling like our only option is to mourn like these women did. Or maybe even ask like the disciples did, is this all Jesus is offering me? Is there any greater hope than what I'm living in right now? Well, thankfully, friends, Mark gives us a resounding answer to that exact question. In verse 4, the women make an alarming discovery. Someone had moved this ginormous stone from the tomb. But the following news they would receive was earth-shattering. Notice with me in verse 5, this angel, this man that greets them on the entrance of the tomb, he tells them Jesus was not dead. Know that he had arisen. In other words, the Lord had not been defeated. He had overcome the impossible. He had defeated the power of sin and death and had given us all a reason to find joy. Notice the angel brought this message to these women in their darkest moment, when grief let them weak and powerless. He gave them a solution to their heartbreak by assuring them Christ has risen. Not only that, if you read the Gospel of John, you know that Jesus actually appears to Mary Magdalene right after this event. He goes to her and calls her name like a father calling his daughter. He embraces her in her heartbreak. He gives her a reason to find joy, a joy in his victory, a joy that surpasses the darkness of the world. 
Friends, I want you to know today that this great joy she felt in Christ's victory is something you can step into by faith. Jesus knows the weight of your pain. He knows how much the world can hurt you. And he wants you to hear him calling your name this morning to come and embrace his resurrected hope, to find peace in the good news that even your sin, that even your brokenness is not able to overcome his victory. No, his victory brings you an eternal hope that no one can steal from you. So in response, let's not isolate ourselves in despair and suffering like the disciples did. Rather, let's faithfully bring our pain, our confusion, maybe even your anger this morning to Christ. Let's faithfully bring ourselves to Jesus. Let's allow him to embrace us where we are this morning. Let's follow Mary's example by completely leaning upon him. Let's allow his spirit to remind us that we have been saved through his victory. I want you to know that your current despair, your current loss, the current grief you might be in, any disappointment that might be building in your heart, I want you to know that that does not have the final say. Christ will make all things new when he returns. And he will take back all that the enemy has stolen. So instead of living in apathy, in cynical sadness, let's go to Psalm 30 and believe when it says that weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Friends, that ultimate joy is here for you this morning in the resurrected Lord. His joy will fulfill you. I promise it. Please step into his joy today. Find hope in who he is and that he's done what he promised he would. But we don't just stop there. Christ's victory does not just overcome our sadness or our current despair. It actually goes further than that. Jesus' resurrection has beautiful implications for your eternity today. Which brings me to my second main point, that Jesus' resurrection overcomes your death. Notice with me, when the women enter the tomb, Mark makes great links to emphasize Jesus's absence from the tomb. When they walk in, they're completely expecting to see the dead body of their friend laying where it was placed on that Good Friday. But it is not there when they get there. In fact, the angel makes a point to say in verse six, you are seeking Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, but he has risen. He is not here. The angel even then invites them to come and see the place where they laid him. The empty spot that was supposed to be filled with his dead body was now a testament that Jesus had conquered death itself. Think about that for a moment. If the tomb was not found empty, if Jesus was still dead on that Sunday, it would have been a sign that he was a fraud. It would have been a testament that death was final, not only for him, but for us. But because the tomb was empty, this is a great statement that death does not control, control Jesus and it does not control you and me if our faith is in him. We are united in this victory over the grave. And these women were given the privilege of being the first eyewitnesses of that beautiful reality. 
Let me take a moment to step aside and just help you recognize how unique this was in ancient culture for these women to be given the credit as eyewitnesses to this event. In Roman law and even Jewish custom, the eyewitness of a woman was not considered as trustworthy as a man. In their society, they did not respect their sisters like they should have. Instead, they said the eyewitness testimony of a man was trusted while women were ignored. Yet, in every single way, we see the gospel writers giving these women full credit for being the ones to see this resurrection first. That should make you think, if Mark is writing a false gospel with a sham of a resurrection, then why in the world would he voluntarily harm his own story by saying that an eyewitness that no one would have trusted was the one that saw it? Why would he purposely hurt his own fake story? Why wouldn't he have said the apostle Peter saw the empty tomb first? Or even a noble man of wealth that everyone would have been in, like, moved to believe? Why not say that some man saw it instead of these women? I would argue that Mark is taking great links here to give you the unfiltered, real account of a real historical event. In other words, the fact that he's giving you every detail should show you this is a real miracle. One that we know exactly who saw first. And that should make us all consider, how does this resurrection impact my life? So let's answer that. Why does it matter that Jesus physically rose again? Why does it matter that he conquered death for you and me today? Well, I think we need to remind ourselves of what it means when we come to Christ in faith. When you believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, you recognize that your past self was dead to sin. You acknowledge that you deserve the death he took in your place. He was your representative when he was nailed to the cross. He took on a death you deserve. And so scripture says that you are buried with Christ in that temporary death. But likewise, when Jesus overcame death, when he resurrected, you and me were united in that resurrection as well. We too will rise again, just as Jesus has. Paul puts this truth plainly in Romans 6, when he says, For if we were united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And Paul finishes by saying, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin has led us to a world where physical death is a reality we all have to face. Death is a consequence of the natural rebellion that humans have chosen to put against God. In other words, death is the product of our sin. It is something that believers and non-believers all have to face. And if you listen to the secular world, they would tell you that there's no beating this death. And so the culture outside of the church will come up with a number of responses to try to reconcile with the reality of death. One camp would say, well, because death is coming and there's nothing we can do about it, then we should just live in the moment. We should just indulge ourselves in the pleasures of the world. And if you know Jimi Hendrix, he was famous for
for not only being a good a guitarist, but for buying into that philosophy of the moment. He famously said in one interview, I'm the one that's got to die when it's time for me to die, so let me live my life the way I want to. The problem with that approach is it might leave you comfortably numb, but you're not going to have any depth to your life. You're not going to have a purpose, and you're not going to care about who you hurt as you try to indulge yourself and distract yourself from coming death. Others will argue, well, we can cheat death by accomplishing great things, by leaving a legacy that will help people remember me after I'm gone. If you know the poet Ralph Waldo Emerson, he stated one time that death comes to all, but great achievements build a monument which shall endure until the sun grows cold. Founders of great companies will almost have that idea of saying, if I just create a product that people will remember, I will be immortalized for the rest of time. People will remember me even after I'm gone. Or we even say success will make us so honored that people will want to be like us or people will always remember what we have done. The sad reality is we live in a distracted world a world that has a devastatingly short memory. And consumers only really care about the product they're buying and not really the person that made it. So then a third group will say, okay, well, you know, it's not about my legacy necessarily or it's not about how much I can indulge in things. It's, it's actually about what love I can find in other humans. If I can just find a spouse that loves me enough, then it means my life matters. Or if a human desires me enough, then I'll be remembered that death won't be final. Or if I just have children that carry on my name, then maybe I'll be remembered. But where do the same people turn if their marriage falls apart? Or their children cut ties with them? Friends, conditional human love is a shaky foundation to plant your fulfillment in. It's a shaky foundation to put your salvation in. The common reality in all three of these approaches is clear that death is coming for humanity and the only option is to try to convince people that you are worth remembering. Let me just say that's a wavering, temporary hope at best. But if you believe in Christ Jesus today, if you trust that he's the son of God, if you believe that he has died for your sins and you submit to that, there is a greater eternal hope for you. If you are a Christian, you will not burn out in the darkness or enter into some eternal sleep when you die. No, you will be welcomed home. You will be resurrected into a new heaven, a new earth. You will be with Jesus physically and you will be able to worship him without sin. Fear, anxiety, worry, those things will be distant memories. Instead, you'll be at peace for eternity. Not only that, you'll be reunited with your brothers and sisters in the faith who may have passed away before you. Friends, that is your ultimate hope. You don't have to live for this broken world. You don't have to chase after some fleeting legacy. You don't have to demand that the love of another human being can complete you. No, you can live for the hope that is in you, that Jesus has overcome death, And he has brought that victory into your life. So in response, when we experience death, 
It's good for us to grieve those losses. It's good for us to mourn with others as they experience grief. But we should also realize that that's not the end of our story. That's not the end of their story. If you believe in Christ, your story will continue on into eternity. And you can cling to that hope even as you wade through the hardship of today. I'm not asking you to ignore your pain. I'm not asking you to ignore grief. I'm encouraging you to step into the hope that Christ is here for you today. If you don't know Jesus, I want you to know that this joy we have in him is not just a coping mechanism. It's not just some happy story to distract you from pain on earth. It's your genuine response to allowing Lord or Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Jesus promises you so much more than just an emotional high. He invites you into a relationship that can uphold you. He gave himself for you so death will not control you. I would encourage you, if you don't believe in him today, come and embrace him. Come and experience this love that surpasses all understanding. He is faithful to not only forgive you, but to give you life to the fullest. If you don't know him, come seek him. Or come ask me or Josh or any of the pastors here today what it means to surrender to him. But friends, this is not the end of our discussion because Jesus' victory does not just defeat our despair. It doesn't just answer the problem of death. It goes even further. Jesus' resurrection brings true redemption to your life right now. Which brings us to our third point for today, that Christ's resurrection overcomes your greatest failures. Mark made it clear. He didn't hold any punches. The disciples let Jesus down. His friends failed him when he needed them the most. When he was being crucified, mocked, abused by the Roman soldiers, the disciples were nowhere to be found. And so that should make us wonder, how is Jesus going to respond to them after his resurrection? Will he hold this failure over their head for the rest of their life? Is their relationship now forever wounded, forever awkward by what happened? Will they always be known as the men who left Jesus to die? Well, beautifully, Mark shows us that that will not be how Jesus treats them. Rather, Jesus will cover their sin and affirm that they still matter deeply to him. They still have this position in, the, in his heart that they can never earn. Notice with me in verse 7, this is very clear. The angel commands the women to go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. This angel did not label these disciples as cowards or faithless friends as Christ had every right to call them. No, the Lord was making clear that these men were forgiven, that they were still seen as his beloved children, and that he was still going to use them despite their failure, despite their weakness. In other words, Jesus was going to remain faithful to them despite their unfaithfulness. I even want you all to know and notice really clearly here that the angel singles out Peter specifically. Notice that. He says, go tell his disciples and Peter. 
Peter, you could argue, besides Judas, probably betrayed Jesus in one of the most clear, condemning ways. He was asked three times if he knew who Christ was. And every single time, Peter said, I don't know him. He completely went back on his claim that he would never leave or betray Jesus. Even if everyone else fall away, Lord, I won't leave you. And yet in the span of only a few hours, he leaves him three different times. I can only imagine the guilt, the self-hatred that was probably in Peter's heart. He probably believed there was no way for him to right that wrong. And you know, if we went by the standards of men, if we went by the standards of our society today, then Peter might have been right. There would have been no forgiveness for him. But I want you all to see that Jesus' standard of grace is so much more than we can even fathom. His grace extended to a man who even denied him. It extended to a man who claimed to never care about him. Jesus' mercy extended to Peter's greatest mistake. Peter was not, or God was not done with his weak follower. Friends, you need to hear today that Jesus' mercy is greater than your sinful past. His grace extends way further than even your worst mistake. If you believe in Jesus today and you repent of your sins, you can be washed clean. You are no longer known by your sin. You are a redeemed child of God who Christ can still use today. On the days you feel like a failure of a husband or a failure of a wife, Christ can still use you. The days you feel like you've been a selfish friend or an uncaring parent, Christ can still use you. The days you feel like your reputation has been destroyed beyond repair, God looks at you and says, you are my child. I still love you. I still delight in you. Because of what my son, Jesus Christ, has done, you are forgiven. Come and abide in me. Don't hide in your defeat. I think the country artist Jason Isbell beautifully describes the transformative power of redemptive love. In one of his songs, he acknowledges his past with alcohol and how he has hurt this woman in his life that he cared deeply about. And in one of his songs, he famously describes just how much her redemptive love meant to him. And in that lyric, he says, cover me up and know you're enough to use me, even me, for good. Brothers and sisters, Jesus's redemptive love truly is enough to cover your sin. It's truly enough to take those weaknesses and use you for good today. His resurrection does not just give you eternal life. It does not just give you a reason to have joy. It undoes your greatest sinful mistakes. It brings redemption to darkness, to brokenness. It can change us today, not just when Jesus returns. So in light of this great victory, let's not allow the enemy to tell us we're defeated. Let's not allow the enemy to force us into wallowing in our mistake. Rather, let's faithfully go to Christ in repentance, understanding that he not only will forgive us, he can empower us to change. He can empower us to be men and women who delight in following him.
The thing is, we have to be humble enough to acknowledge we're sinful and that we actually need him to change. He is enough to redeem you. He is enough to change you. We have to believe that, and we must be willing to trust it. Secondly, we have to be humble enough to extend that forgiveness to others. Let me make this clear to you guys. We are no better than the Apostle Peter. We have betrayed Jesus countless of times with our own willful sins. And so we're in the exact same place he was. We are all like sheep who have fallen astray, but we can all be redeemed in that good shepherd. So if someone comes to you in repentance for how they have hurt you, consider how Jesus wants you to extend that forgiveness to them. Consider how Jesus wants you to show that same redemptive love he has shown you. Let's all live in that humble reliance on Christ to change us and help us to rejoice in his love. So in closing today, I think we can all agree with the apostle, with the apostle Paul that the resurrection is the ultimate joy we can find. The cross was necessary and vital, but it was not the end of the story. Jesus' victory over despair, over death, over our weakness is the reason we can get up every morning and have hope. It's the reason we can look forward to tomorrow. In closing, just notice in verse 8 that even though the women were initially stunned by this great victory, they couldn't help but later share it with the disciples. They couldn't help but share it with the world that desperately needed it. I would argue that should be our response, that we can't help but share this hope that is in us. So I would encourage you today to consider how might Christ use you this week to bring a light to the darkness? How might he use you this week, even you, to share his redemptive love? Because he is our friend, he is our Lord, and he is our faithful redeemer. And he can overcome even our brokenness to do great things. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for being willing to send your son. Jesus, Son of God, I thank you so much that you were willing to die for even me. And Holy Spirit, thank you that you bring us a hope today in this resurrected truth. I pray, Lord, that we would believe you have conquered the brokenness in our life. And I pray that we would walk in confidence of that victory today. I pray if there's anyone here that does not know you or feels like they're too far to be forgiven by you, I pray they would feel welcomed by your spirit. And I pray that we can be a church that shows that welcomeness to others. In your son's name, amen.